I demand a lot of sound from a poem. The arts are filled with people who are non-traditional thinkers. The arts are a wonderful window onto the soul of America. I started ending my columns by saying excelsior. Reading awakens your senses. If you write well, you are utterly exposed. A voice said, this is George Cukor. Its value will never be diminished. The oldest art we have is narrative literature. The arts, it's what makes us human. There's a reason that fiction exists. Say it's gonna rain, children. God's gonna save Theater can really change people's lives. It can be profoundly about human experience. It's gonna rain. They crown me queen. I the queen of the Zydeco music. The National Endowment for the Arts presents Artworks. We say atrocious. That sounds very British. Sounds like a nanny would say atrocious. And then you'd be smart, so you'd be precocious. And there, that's a good word. And then we said, well, why not docious? Just stick at the end of it. And super colossal we started with. And that's everybody and his uncle would say super colossal. We said, say something just mad, you know, califragilistic. It sounds like it's important. And so we put the whole thing together. And there you got it. Super califragilistic, expialidocious. <laughs> Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious Even though the sound of it is something quite atrocious If you say it loud enough, you'll always sound precocious Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Richard Sherman is half of the tireless songwriting team the Sherman Brothers, and he's a walking, talking American songbook. With his brother Robert, he's turned out hundreds of memorable songs for stage, screen, and even theme parks. A spoonful of sugar? It's a small world, after all. And the one you just heard, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, are just three examples of why the Sherman Brothers were presented with the National Medal of Arts in 2008. The Sherman Brothers have won two Academy Awards, both of them for Mary Poppins, one for Best Song, Chim Chimarie, and the other for Best Musical Score. And when I sat down to talk with Richard Sherman, that's where I began, with Mary Poppins and Walt Disney. Well, Richard Sherman, Mary Poppins was one of the most popular musical films ever made. Talk to me about it. Well, it certainly was the, the uh, beginning of a, an enormous streak of wonderful good fortune, but uh, the great Walt Disney, selected by brother Bob and I to uh, create the songs and the help with the idea, the storyline of how to create this film based on a classic book by Pamela Travers. And uh, as you most likely know, the the books themselves do not have a storyline, so we had to invent a storyline. And that was the big jump, you know, to do book musicals for Bob and me because we had started out in the music business as popular songwriters. So it was a, it was a Herculean jump for us, I mean, that, that uh, initial opportunity. Mary Poppins was your first show. It was our first major book musical, yes. Wow. And uh, this is a long time ago, you know. <laughs> it's it's 40, 45 years, I guess. And but, yeah. you, you won not just one, but two Academy Awards for it. Yes, we did. We got very lucky that day. <laughs> we, we got the best song with Chim Chim Cheree about the chimney sweep, the lucky chimney sweep. And then we got another one for the score, which is the combination of all the songs. 
as used in the uh, in the film. So we got two of them each. <laughs> Do you have a favorite song from that musical? You know, it's hard to say a favorite. Walt Disney's favorite was Feed the Birds. Many times he'd asked me to play that for him. So I think that's very, very near and dear to me because when we first played it for him, he realized that we were trying to say what the whole story was all about, that it doesn't take much to give love. That's what Feed the Birds is all about. It's not about the price of a bag of breadcrumbs. Uh, and it, it doesn't take much, tuppence is two pennies, nothing, to, uh, to do a kind deed, to, do, to show love. And that was the theme of that whole movie, Mary Poppins. And uh, he read that. That was the day he gave us the opportunity to become his staff songwriters because up until then we were doing songs piecemeal for his productions. And at this particular time he said, um, how would you fellas like to come and work for me? And we said, oh, yes, we would. And that was the, really the beginning of our major output. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between, as you say, you were popular songwriters and then suddenly writing songs and music for a film. A good song is a, is a very, very special thing, and great songwriting is a great art. But there's a huge difference and a much a gigantic jump between writing for the popular market and writing for a story. Because with a story, you have a time frame, you have characters, you have situations, you have all these things, a, a wealth of jewels to, to come to work with. And so it was a great blessing to be able to do a book musical as opposed to try to dream up another song to, to try and sell to the market to get uh, some singer to want to sing it or something. It was a very, very giant, giant jump for my brother and myself. And it all came about because of the fact that the great Walt Disney, and I say that with such homage to him, recognized something in Bob and myself. We were trying to write stories within our little songs. We weren't just trying to say the obvious, but try to say a little bit more. And he recognized that. We were writing songs for a little girl named Annette Funicello. And uh, she was like the most popular one. She was a doll, and I loved her. I still do. And she sang a song of ours called Tall Paul. He's my all, big rocker. And it became a big hit. And to our joy, what happened was uh, the record company, the people with the record company said, can you do some more songs for Annette? Said, sure we can, of course, <laughs> you bet your life. You know, nobody asked us to, will you write something? We were trying to beg them to record our songs, but this particular lucky accident took place and she, and she recorded our Tall Paul, became a big number one song, and then uh, we wrote a number of big hits for her. And unbeknownst to us, Walt Disney was listening to everything we were writing. And so one day he said, uh, I bring those two young fellows that are writing those songs for Annette, bring those brothers in. I want to meet them and give them an assignment. And that's how it all started. He started assigning us pictures and storylines. and I mean, not storylines, but just stories to write a title song for or a situation song. And uh, then one day, uh, after five or six acceptances, he, uh, he handed us this book. He didn't say, write me a song. He said, read this book and tell me what you think. And we knew oh. <laughs> that's the writing on the wall. That was it. And uh, sure enough, it was the stories of Mary Poppins by Pamela Travers. Had you read them yourself? Never heard of Mary Poppins before. Funny thing happened. He said, do you know what a, a, a nanny is? And we said, oh, yeah, it's a goat. <laughs> we thought, well, he wants us to write a story about a goat. And he says, oh, no, no, Nur English nursemaid takes care of children. Oh, yeah, well, sure we know what a nanny is. He says, well, read this book and, and tell me what you think. We'd never read the books before. And they were enchanting stories, little individual stories. And the, the dynamite character was Mary Poppins. She was just wonderful. And we felt we, we can't just come in and say to Mr. Disney, uh, uh, we think it's, it's enchanting and there's a great 
main character here. We said, he's asking us, what do we think? We think it needs a storyline. And so we had to sort of drum up a storyline, and that's what we did. We, we came up with a not the storyline that everybody knows and loves now, but the one that, that gave us the opportunity to link six, six chapters together that we thought would make a very good story. After we finished telling our version of what we th- thought could happen and why Mary Poppins flew in and she did a, a good job and then she flew out again, he, he said, let me see your book. And we showed him our book, and I was terrified because Bob and I had marked it up and underlined the, the chapters and all that and dog-eared the pages. He took out his book, and he showed it to us. He had underlined the same six chapters we had that he was thinking that sort of how he'd like to base his storyline. And that's the day he said, come and work for me. <laughs> Mary Poppins also dealt on the periphery of magic. There was magic that oh, happened yeah. in the books and certainly in the film, but I think what you and your brother did with the lyrics and the music is that you had to contain that kind of magic by creating words like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Well, it was expected of her. It, it, you, Mary Poppins was doing the unexpected at all times. She slid up banisters. She didn't just, you know, walk down the stairs or something. She'd slide down the stairs, too. But she slid up the banister. And when, when she put the children to sleep, we created a little lullaby called Stay Awake, you know, and just the opposite of everything that you'd expect in a lullaby, and that puts the children to sleep. And so when we came up with this idea of doing a, a word, a gift, that she could give the children, we decided we want to come up with some real crazy, obnoxious word like Bob and I used to make up when we were kids. In summer camp, we used to idle our time away with uh, cobble, flobble, slobulation and things like that. I mean, it meant nothing, but everybody said, oh, they're bright. They knew the... <laughs> And so we wanted to come up with something that made you feel smart. And everybody knew anti-disestablishmentarianism is the biggest word in the dictionary at that time. And so yeah, you kind of took over. Yeah, that, we took didn't over you? that. But then, basically, what we did. Let me see. We wanted obnoxious, but we didn't want to do that. We said, "Yes, it's not British enough." We say atrocious. That sounds very British. Sounds like a nanny would say atrocious. And then you'd be smart, so you'd be precocious. And there, that's a good word. And then we said, "Well, why not docious to stick at the end of it?" And super colossal. We started with, and that's everybody and his uncle would say super colossal. We said, "Say something." just mad, you know, califragilistic. It sounds like it's important. And so we put the whole thing together, and there you got it. Supercalifragilistic, expialidocious. You were also handed quite a cast. Oh, what a cast, what a cast. What happened then was we had the excitement and the thrill of of finding the right people. And in the business of of motion pictures, it's so expensive, you always want to have that insurance policy, that major star that pulls in the cast with an unknown story, because nobody knew Mary Poppins. And so initially, we were thinking, not we, but Walt Disney and the powers that be at the studio, were thinking about getting a major player, uh, an Angela Lansbury, uh, Audrey Hepburn. One night, I was sitting at my my tube and that fish tank and I was watching the Ed Sullivan show and a young beautiful girl named Julie Andrews came out and and with Richard Burton sang a song from Camelot called What Do the Simple Folk Do and she knocked me down I said oh my god that's Mary Poppins that is Mary Poppins I called my brother while she was singing and he said are you watching the Ed Sullivan show I said yes I am he says I'm looking at Mary Poppins I said so am I we couldn't wait till the next day we walked in, and there was Don DeGrotti coming down the hall. He said, did you see Ed Sullivan last night? Well, we, the three of us, 
marched down to Walt's office. We wanted to announce that we'd seen the perfect person. And Walt's secretary, uh, Tommy Wilk, her name was, she said, don't tell Walt you've seen it. Let me suggest that he's, go, he's going next week to New York to, to go to Camelot and let him discover it. Because if you tell him, he's not going to buy it so fast. But if, if he discovers it himself, sure enough, uh, seven days later, he was there in New York. He saw Camelot. He invited Julie Andrews to become Mary Poppins. And that's how it all started. And it was Walt's idea to, to get Dick Van Dyke, who was superb, a dream piece of character, character casting. And he was wonderful as, as Bert. And uh, what dancing and, and performing and acting he did and singing. When you wrote those songs, here it was, it was your first show. Were you writing for the characters? Did you have the stars in mind as well? Well, you know, it's a funny thing, but uh, your question is very well couched. Did we think about the stars? No. We thought only about the characters. We were trying to write a crisp, bright, strange lady with a bit of mystique in her, and that's what we were trying to capture. The casting came much later, but all the songs, the script were writ was written. There was one song I remember that we wrote specifically for Julie. She loved everything she'd heard, but confided in Walt that there was one song. We had written a ballad for, for a certain spot in the show, which was her philosophy. She didn't like it. She felt it wasn't crisp enough. It wasn't bright enough for the Mary Poppins character. She wanted something that really epitomized her personality, and she would express the way she feels about life to the children in her own way. And so Bob and I said, we'll come up with a slogan, a little catchphrase. And that's not an easy thing to come up with, like stitch in time saves nine, an apple a day keeps a doctor away, that type of thing. And so we, we were digging and we were digging. And one day Bob's son came home from school. He was a little boy then. And Bob said, Jeff, what, what, what did you do today? And, and Jeff said, well, we had the, the polio vaccine today. And he said, did it hurt? Oh, no, 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 no. They put it on a Cuba sugar. And then we, they put it in a little plastic spoon, and you took it in your mouth, and it was candy. It was, it was delicious. My brother came in the next day with his glassy-eyed expression. He says, I think I got the title. I think I've got the title. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. The medicine go down. Medicine go down. Just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go Wow, down. I said... Yeah, yeah, great, you know, and bang, we, we started going with that. And it was just, that was the, the trigger for that song, and that, Julie loved that one. How did you and your brother become songwriting partners? That goes back a long way. Our father was a great songwriter, and he wrote songs in the 20s and the 30s that became very, very famous, and he was the one that teamed us up. He said, together, you guys, I think, could maybe make something yourselves. Because Bob wanted to write novels and books and plays and things, and I wanted to write classic musicals and all that type of thing. But Dad teamed us up one day and said, if you wrote together, I think you might, you might scratch the surface somehow. And then he challenged us, really. He says, I bet you couldn't do it. He was like throwing the gauntlet down, and we, we, uh, we went for it. What was it like growing up in a musical family? You know, you take it for granted. My mom was an actress, and she also played fabulous piano. And uh, my dad was playing at the piano all the time. I used to sit under the piano and watch him. I'd watch his, his foot on the pedal, and I'd wonder why he was doing that when I was a little boy, listening to him write songs with his partners and everything. It was very kind of, like, exciting. The conversation was always about the theater and about music and about records. And I think I take a little humble bow once in a while because I worked very hard at the gift, but the gift was given. 
God or the genes or however you want to put it together gives you that. But uh, Bob and I worked very, very hard all these years to, to, to create good stuff with the talent we were given. What do you think makes a good song? Story, idea, concept, originality, freshness, the unexpected, the lack of being trite. And, and many times you hear a song, you know the next line before you've heard it, and you've never heard it before. And memorability, a hook. We call, you could call it a hook, something that you, you, you catch it and you, don't, you can't let go of it. It's just part and parcel of your life. And uh, you look for those hooks. Uh, there's little things that you... I can't explain exactly how you do it because that's... I don't know, people write books on how to, how to do these things. I think <laughs> it's got to be an instinct. To me, it's got to be instinct. Well, when you and your brother sit down to write a song together, can you just give me an idea of how that works? It's exactly what you and I are doing. We talk to each other. We, we converse. We, we uh, throw ideas back and forth. And uh, being brothers, <laughs> we occasionally become insulting. I say, don't, don't insult me with that one, you know, or something like that. It's all done in jest, but, uh, oh, no, that stinks. Uh, you know, we would say something like that. And then once in a while, a line comes out or a thought or what about if, and bang, we, then we, we both, there's that, that awe moment when nobody says anything, you know, and then, yeah, and then we go from there. And I'm jumping over to the piano. I play the piano. So I, I, I start uh, playing and saying, how about if we do so-and-such? And he'll say, no, do so-and-so. And we go back and forth. But it's a constant give and take. We do give and take uh, both lyrically and musically to each other. You were you were at Disney, or with Disney during sort of the golden age of Disney. Absolutely, those wonderful golden years. He had he had fought all his battles. He'd won all those battles. He'd he'd uh, saved the studio with with Snow White, and then he'd survived the war uh, by doing war pictures and things like that. And he came back, and he had Cinderella, and he had these wonderful pictures. And then he wanted to get into live action. And about that time is when Bob and I came onto the, onto the lot and uh, became the staff songwriters. And my God, we wrote a lot of songs for him. We wrote uh, every day, you know, and it was, Popman's was this major, major opus, but we were doing all kinds of things, picture after picture, and the television shows. He did the wonderful World of Color theme song, and uh, for the parks we did It's a Small World After All, and uh, many other pict- uh, songs for his projects. Well, I do want to talk about those projects. How did It's a Small World After All come into being? Oh, that was lucky. You know, sometimes uh, serendipity, lucky accidents play a great part in your life. And and in this particular case, yes, because it's, I, I think, the most popular song Bob and I have ever written. I'm told it's, it's the most, like an earworm. Nobody can get rid of it. And they either want to kiss us or kill us for having written it. <laughs> Usually kill. But basically, I It's a Small that. World After All was kind of a... A Band-Aid, if I might use that expression, for a project. They were doing this wonderful salute to the children of the world for UNICEF back at the World's Fair, 64 World's Fair. And they had this pavilion called UNICEF Salutes the Children of the World. And in it, they were going to have these audio animatronics dolls, all magnificently gowned and, and you know costumed, singing the national anthems of the various countries as you went by in your little boats. And that's a great idea on paper. But in actual uh, point of fact, it was a terrible mess. It was a cacophony because every song was washing into the next song. 
I remember vividly Bob and I were called down to a soundstage and we were listening to these children, beautiful choirs, singing different songs. And the first couple of songs are rather definable and all of a sudden they became a complete mess. It was just a cacophony. And Walt said, okay, kill it, kill it. So they turned off all the sound. He said, I want you guys to write me a, a little song that sort of covers the entire subject but make it simple so that we can translate it into any language. Repetition, that type of thing. You got it? And we said, yeah, Walt, are we stuck with UNICEF salutes the children of the world? That's a mouthful. He says, no, 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 but it's about the small kids of the world. It's there, the hope for the future. So that's the theme of the thing. Can you do something like that? I, said, I think we can maybe come up with something. And so we came up with, uh, it's a small world after all. Let's not blow each other up. We didn't say that line, but that's the idea. The after all is the, is the major statement. It's a small world after all. Good Lord, let's learn to love and respect each other. And these innocent little children singing it has a meaning. And it does. If you listen to it closely, it's a, it has a very great meaning. You've written popular songs, and then you've written songs with books. Yeah, the book musical. The though. book musical. Yeah. And songs for events like the World's Fair. Yes. You've written for Disney World, for Epcot Center. Oh, yes. Is there, and, and you've written for the theater. <laughs> that too. <laughs> Are there particular challenges that each pose? You know, that's a good question, but it's so it's so difficult to answer because it's Every song has to have a reason. Bob and I always start with why, because you just don't drivel away notes and words like so many times you hear notes and words and they come in and go out of your ear and you never remember them. Something memorable, whether it's for a project or whether it's for a pop tune or a little record, it's got to have something of substance in it. And we always dig for that substance. There's no difference to us, whether we're writing for a, a little stuffed teddy bear or a beautiful diva to sing it uh, on a stage. It's the same, it's the same thing. We, we approach everything from the idea of the, the finest possible quality for that particular subject. Working at the Disney Studios, being a talent there, being able to be a creator there, it was supposed to have been a really, really wonderful time where people just got to ignite each other with ideas, that there was a real back and forth among the people who worked there. Is that true? That is absolutely true. And I, I think that one of the most amazing things, particularly in the years when Walt was, let's say, the progenerator of the whole thing, he was, he was the spark plug. He would be in on these meetings, these creative meetings, and he loved having joint meetings where teams got together. He believed in teamwork. And, of course, it's a beautiful way of working. The only ego in the room would be Walt. And, you, and he never was an egomaniac, but nobody else could be egocentric. You'd have to be part of a team. And he liked that kind of team players. People that couldn't play like that didn't last long at the studio. But he had 35-year men and 40-year men and 25-year men who were there for all these years. It was a golden age. It was a really golden age. It never was that again. It never, ever was that again. When Walt died... Uh, the studio wasn't the same after that. Did it change very quickly? Oh, d d dramatically, yes. And then it, it came back with the advent of uh, the new ma management back about 20 years ago. And then a rebirth came into Disney when they started really thinking about not the bottom line, but how good the projects could be. And there's a big, big difference. 
What songwriters do you like? Who do you listen to? I adore great songwriters. Well, starting with Gilbert and Sullivan, because I adore them. But then I adored the beautiful, clean simplicity of Irving Berlin, who said it all on the head of a pen. He was a remarkable composer. And then there was Cole Porter, the most sophisticated, fabulous, fabulous man with words and inventive music. And Rodgers and Hammerstein, the pure statements they made, the, the pure Americana of it all. There were so many people that I owe a bow of gratitude for because they inspired me. I never wanted to try to write like them or anything, but I tried to write maybe as good. (laughs) I tried to. You know, I I always find it interesting because I think without question, America's unique contribution to the world of art has to be music. It has to be jazz and it has to be the American songbook, the American musical, which where you and your brother most clearly lodge as well. (laughs) Why do you think that that, that's where so many people found expression that's so unique? There's so many flavors that go into it. You know, let's not forget the the wonderful Negro spirituals that came over from Africa in the beginning, the, the, the work songs that they sang, that was the inspiration for all of it. I mean, the American style. Then the, the blending the European, the Jerome Kern, who came over with these wonderful melodies, melodic lines and great har- harmonies, using that and then blending it in with the Negro feeling. So you got Showboat, the, the, one of the classic song scores in the history of music is Showboat. And, and I mean, and that was Europe and, and the, the Negro spiritual blending together. Gershwin taking the, the sounds of jazz and making it into majesty. I mean, he was just a genius. It's, it's a combination of all these things coming together. Irish, the wonderful warm Irish ballads. Is there any one song perhaps or one project that you feel perhaps closest to? We started talking about Mary Poppins, and I'd have to say this. All my hopes and dreams and everything from the time I was in college were built on wanting to write a great musical. I really did, very much. And I just loved all the people I mentioned before and how much I loved seeing their work. And I wanted to do something like that. And then the opportunity came along. Ten years into my career as a pop tune writer, this genius Walt Disney comes into our lives and hands us a book and says, what do you think? And I said, Mr. Disney, this is what I've been dreaming of all my life. And so, yes, we had the opportunity of a lifetime there. And, and yes, it was, it was that picture that made it all possible. So that all the things that followed. You are part of the most successful songwriting team in American history. Oh, no, I never. I wouldn't no, no, say no. that. No, no, honestly. I, it's in my notes. It's, <laughs> it's in my notes. It's, it's true. It's in my it, notes. It's in my notes. It's true. Uh, well, we've been around a long time. Your songs speak to so many people. That's undeniable. Why? What do you think it is? <laughs> you know, our dad, years and years ago, when we were beginning, he sat us down and he talked to us and he says, there are three S's that I want you fellas to burn into your brain. And remember this, for everything you ever write, keep it simple, singable, and sincere. That is, you're about to leaving. And he said, and original. And then he walked out. I think, if anything, we don't try to make it so complicated that somebody says, aren't I clever? Look what I did. Look how I rhymed this. It has to just be there like it's always like a friend. That's why I love Berlin, because he made it so simple to understand, and yet he said so much with a few words. He was a brilliant, brilliant songwriter. But then on top of that, you have singable. And how many times you come out of a show, and you've had a good time in the show, but you can't sing a tune. You can't remember a thing. And after you buy the album, you still can't sing it. 
I mean, it's just they, they've forgotten what melodic lines are. So that's singable and sincere. So many times people are just writing to be clever and to be smart and to be sharp. And how can I make this sound so kooky? And how can I use this filthy word and get away with it? I mean, th- this is kind of stuff. But to me, sincerity comes from the heart. And you got to mean it. And you got to care about the characters you're singing about. Even if they're the bad guys, you got to make them sincere bad guys. I mean, really go with it. So simple, singable, sincere. Originality is something that comes from, I think, experience. You know what's been done and say, how can I put a little twist on it to make it mine? And that's, that's the other thing. These are things that are easily fluffed off, but those are really the, the tools, the, the rules. Is there anything you'd like to add on this auspicious occasion? <laughs> I would like to add that I am deeply, deeply moved that the committee of people that put, that put these wonderful medals out decided to present Bob and me with a medal. We certainly never, ever dreamed this, something like this would ever happen, and it's very exciting to be in Washington, D.C., and, and uh, looking forward to being at the White House and, and receiving this award. It's a very special thing to me. Oh, and it's so well-deserved. Thank you so much for your time, Richard. I really Thank appreciate you. it. That was Richard Sherman. He's half of the songwriting team, the Sherman Brothers. Richard and Robert Sherman were presented with the National Medal of Arts in 2008. You've been listening to Artworks, produced by the National Endowment for the Arts. To find out more about the NEA, go to our website at www.arts.gov. That's www.arts.gov. Artworks theme music is Paul Desmond's Take Five, performed by the Dave Brubeck Quartet, and used courtesy of Desmond Music and Dairy Music Company. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.